Hi folks, Bob Main here with another episode of today's Survival Show. Helping you do what you can with what you have wherever you are. This is a practical, no tinfoil hat show. I don't get far out there and all that tinfoil hatish kind of stuff. I just keep this rooted in common sense. The guests that I bring on and the subject matter that I talk about, I ask them and I hold myself to a standard that we keep this useful, practical, full of common sense and information that you can use right away to start getting better prepared in your life. And speaking of better prepared in your life, I don't I do not have good news to report. Um, about two weeks ago I was diagnosed with cancer. I have non Hodgkin's lymphoma. So if it didn't get bad enough in our family, it just got worse. My doctors are giving me a pretty good prognosis. They feel like with aggressive treatment they can cure this. I went in for an, uh, a different reason, went into the hospital for a different reason and uh, they ended up doing surgery to take my gallbladder out and they found a bunch of tumors on my liver and they biopsied one of those tumors and found out that it's cancer. Um, fortunately the type of cancer I have does have a high success rate in being able to be cured or put into remission. So I am praying and I am standing on the power of God that that is going to be the case for me. I don't feel like I'm finished yet here on this earth. I feel like I have a lot more to do. That's God's decision. You know, if Jesus thinks I have more to do here, he's going to keep me here. And I'm praying that that is his will. And I'm going to fight real hard, folks. I have a warrior spirit. I have a fighter spirit. But this is why you have to prepare. You have to prepare for major illnesses like this. This is one thing. This is a stink hit the fan event. You know, my wife was given a terrible diagnosis a year ago. So now we're both dealing with, you know, uh, bad diseases. And, you know, if it ends up being my time to go, it's my time to go. And I hope that, you know, my time on earth that, as Ralph Waldo Emerson says, if even one life breathes easier because you have lived, then that's to have succeeded. And that has been my goal always, to even just enable one life to breathe, breathe easier then my goal has been achieved. But folks, I plan on being here a while and I'm going to fight. I do want you to know though, if if the podcasts don't come out regularly or if I don't get on the forum regularly, you'll know why. I start chemotherapy on Thursday uh, for 18 weeks uh, and it's probably going to be rough. Probably going to be real rough. So, you know, as they say, sometimes the cure is worse than the disease and it's going to be a, it's going to be a battle, but I'm going to fight it, and I'm going to fight it hard. So I wanted to put that announcement out there so that you know, so that it's out there, and I really appreciate all of the encouragement and the prayers that have been coming my way. If you've been following me on Facebook, I put this information out there before. I do have a today's survival show Facebook page, so if you want to uh, follow me. Uh, go to Facebook and search today's survival show. Please use that for the for show topics. Uh, please don't use my Bob Main page. That's just my personal page for my friends and things. But today's survival show has a Facebook page. Just search that in the search bar on Facebook, and you will find it. And give it a like, and follow me, and I'll be posting things on that page from time to time and updates. All right. Well. Uh, let's get off the bad stuff and let's shift gears. Let's talk about part three of disaster mitigation 
and disaster cleanup. This is the last in the three-part series where I interviewed White Bear out in Montana, a primitive living skills instructor who also was an EMT for 10 years. You know, keep in mind, he's got a lot of good experience in our side of the world too, not just the primitive living side of the world. And he has a lot of good things to say about disaster mitigation. In other words, just, you know, how to reduce the effect of a disaster on you. You know, that's what disaster mitigation means to me. Is that what it means to you? Reducing the effect of it. If you can reduce the impact, reduce the effectiveness, the effect of that disaster, that's the goal. Then you got to clean up and you got to rebuild. So we talk about that again. This is part three, interview coming up shortly. Well, this week, White Bear is back for part number three, probably the final episode that we're going to do on this disaster cleanup and mitigation. Welcome back to the show again. Good to be back, Bob. Yeah, thanks. Uh, parts one and two were very well received. You know, uh, some good comments on the forum and also some, fo- uh, you know, I track downloads and I usually track downloads specifically by episode. And when I bring you on and certain other people, it seems to get a lot of hits. Well, I'm glad it does well for you. Yeah, thank you. A lot of new listeners um, to the show. So in case uh, people weren't maybe listening to some of the other ones, or maybe this is the first episode that they're listening to, give people your background. Tell people what you do. Uh, I, I'm a primitive living and wilderness self-reliance instructor. been doing it for 35 years. Uh, I also spent 10 years as a paramedic and firefighter, so I, I have uh, a good background in disaster mitigation and cleanup. Um, and I, take, I teach people not only in the wilderness, but I've been doing a lot of uh, instruction with people on, on how to prepare at home, what kind of supplies they should have uh, for a survival situation, self-reliance situation, uh, and as well as the, the cleanup and mitigation. And I, I don't really like to call it survival. And a lot of people have, have said, well, you know, you, you're into wilderness survival, so, you know, what are you doing with disaster mitigation and cleanup in an urban setting? It's not, what I teach isn't really survival because when, when someone is in a survival mindset, um, all else has failed and they, they think when they go to that survival mindset, it's, it's a do or die. What I teach is wilderness self-reliance. I teach people how to rely on themselves and rely on what Mother Nature has with basically only what's on their back. Uh, not taking out these big, you know, 3,000 cubic inch packs or 7,000 cubic inch packs or maybe, you know, you can maybe take a day pack with a few things, but if, if that all goes to H-E-L-L and you don't have anything but what is on your body and what you have in your mind, which is the most important, uh, tool, then you need to know how to be self-reliant and self-rescue. And that's uh, the better way to describe what I do. You know, and I want to make a comment about that. It's not, it's not too far of a stretch in thinking to imply that it's possible after there's some kind of a disaster to find yourself in that situation. I wouldn't think running out to the wilderness would be a person's first choice unless there's someone like you that has a lot of experience. But... You know, I've always kind of had a saying that you don't know what's going to happen and you might not be looking for trouble, but trouble might find you or the unexpected might be happening and you could find yourself in that type of a situation and you need to know what to do. 
Well, exactly. I mean, you could live in a, in a, a suburban or urban area, and you might have the, the biggest, baddest survival vehicle all decked out with all of your gear, and maybe a tornado comes through that is unannounced, or some kind of uh, man-made disaster happens that uh, you can't drive your vehicle away, then what are you going to do? You're basically screwed. So if you don't have all of your tools, those safety nets as I call them, what are you going to do? If you don't know how to self-rescue and, and be self-reliant with what's in your mind and what you have on you, and if unless you carry a pack on you 24-7, which I don't know anybody that does that, what are you going to do without the supplies if you don't know how to self-affect your own your own survival, quote unquote, and be self-reliant with the knowledge in your head? Yeah, well said, well said. Let's just leave it at that because I'll let people think and chew on that one for a while. Yeah, I like to give people food for thought so that they kind of think about the fact of you know you can go to all these great uh, survival supply places, but you know that gear may not be available when you need it. Very true. All right, so in this third part, uh, we're going to talk more about supplies and stuff, aren't we? Yes. Okay, good. So take it away. Go go for the first subject. Well, I'm going to kind of recap for a second. We, we talked about the tools and cleanup supplies, and one of the things that I brought up and I've gotten a lot of uh, emails about is when I talked about having hammers and I talked about having a framing hammer, the three-pound and 20-pound uh, hammers, and a lot of people ask me, they don't know the difference between, you know, they, well, what, is a, what is a framing hammer? And a framing hammer is something that you use to frame a house. And it's not one of these little 8-ounce hammers that you buy at the local hardware store. And it's not one of the little, like, short-handled, like, 20, 16 or 20-ounce. 20 That's not really a framing hammer. A framing hammer has a, a 17 or 18-inch long handle. And it has a minimum of a 20-ounce head that is a little bigger than in profile than a normal hammer that uh, is easier to strike a 16-penny a nail, which is a three-and-a-half-inch nail, through, like, two-by-fours to, to construct something. Mm-hmm. If, you try to, if you try to use a regular, like, 16- or 20-ounce, uh, what they call a finish hammer, you could, you're going to wear your arm out trying to nail those nails in, where a framing hammer is a lot easier. It takes a lot less striking power to drive that nail through the wood. But also one of the other things that people could consider that I, that I wanted to bring up is what's called a rig builder's hammer. Okay. It's a hammer that has a, a framing head on one side, and it's a hatchet head on the other side. So you can have a hatchet and a hammer in one unit and use that. So it's a hatchet and a hammer in one unit. Yes, it is. It's called a rig builder's hammer. They still make them. You can find. I own three of them. You can find them at you know hardware stores. You can find them at secondhand stores or antique shops. A lot of places have them. And they used to use them in the old days for timber framing. Uh, they were very popular uh, because they could split cedar shakes or shingles with them, and they could do a lot of things with the hatchet side, and they used the hammer side. So they didn't have to carry multiple things. They just had one tool that would do uh, multiple uses. Sounds to me like an excellent bug-out bag item. It is an excellent bug-out bag item because you could use it to cut firewood, to split to split little pieces of wood to, to make, you know, tinder wood or, or uh, um uh, even split like fat wood as they call it, uh, you know, to to get the the sap wood in the middle. Um, so it is it is a very versatile hammer to have. Okay, so um, are there any certain brands or types that you recommend or not? Um, Vaughn makes one. Uh, you can actually get one at, at Sears, the Craftsman brand. Those are two good. I have one of each of those, and uh, the other one I have is uh, I don't even know the name of it. It's so old. 
but it's you know those two brands, Vaughn and, and Craftsman, are the two that I would recommend because they're the two main makers anymore of the rig builders hammers. I've just yeah, I've had terrific luck with all Craftsman tools, so I think I'm going to go look for one of those uh, one of the Craftsman brand. Yeah, and, and the other thing too is people were asking me what my preference would be for handles on the hammers, sledgehammer, and axes. And obviously, being a primitive guy, I'm going to say wood. And the reason I'm going to say wood is if that handle breaks, you could technically fashion one out of a limb in the woods if you needed to. You could get a piece of wood, you know, a branch, cut a branch off, and you could whittle it down to make it so it would fit in that head, and you could then continue to use it. If you get one that's fiberglass or steel, um, you know, and that 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 neck breaks on a steel hammer, which it can happen if you overstrike or strike the wrong way. You're basically uh, out of tool because it's inoperable. So a, a wooden handle is something you can also keep extras on hand, and they're easy to replace. And, again, you can make your own if you needed to. Yeah, good point. Good point. All right, so I, I think uh, you probably sold a lot of those hammers. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're very uh, – they like I said, they're not around a lot anymore because people don't usually do, you know, the, the – the, type of uh, timber framing, you know, in general construction, but it is a very effective tool that you could throw into your bug-out bag, take out in the woods with you if you want to carry a hatchet, carry that instead, and then you have a multi-purpose tool. Well, and you can get them on, uh, you can get Vons on uh, Amazon. I'm looking at it right now, so uh, if somebody wants to pick one of those up, by the way, use my Amazon link. Yeah, Vaughn is a very good, they, they have made hammers for years and years and years. They're a very good brand. But again, like with Craftsman, if something happened to the head, if, it, if the head did break or whatever, they'll replace it at any Sears uh, hardware store. Yeah, they, they've got Vaughn Rig Builders hatchets um, with a 17-inch handle. I think that's a little long, but they've got them for about 35 bucks. Looks like they got some shorter ones, too. Well, the rig, rig builders handles do come. You do want. I'm going to say you want something with a 17 or 18 inch handle. The the big reason is is because it's less fatigue on your arm if you're trying to chop something. It's less fatigue. Uh, it, it's it's going to take less strikes to go through something because you have a, a longer swing on the hammer. And if you if you have a shorter one, you'd be surprised at how uh, how fast your arm will get tired. And it can also cause tendonitis because you're trying to swing that hammer in fast repetitive motions to chop where you don't need to do that so much you can let the, the head of the hammer do the work instead of your arm trying to do the work well that's a good point uh but does don't they break a little bit easier if the handle's longer or no has that not been your experience no no, no? The, the only the only thing you the way that can happen is if you overstrike. but with that you could do two things they have a rubber uh, uh, sleeve that slides over up under the head of the hammer, so if you overstrike, it won't it won't strike the handle. Or one of the things that I do, and it's an, a way to carry extra duct tape, is I wrap underneath there with duct tape with several layers of duct tape. That way, it prevents the the handle from getting uh, struck if I overstrike. And I have duct tape to carry with me if I need it for anything. Ah, excellent. Yeah, so they're on Amazon for about thirty-five or thirty-six dollars. Go over to my Amazon link on my website and get a rig builder's. Hammer or hatchet. Yeah, that's it's a great multi-purpose tool. Good. All right. What's next? 
Well, uh, now I, I thought we would start talking. Uh, we talked the last two episodes about the, the types of tools and cleanup supplies, what you should have for each member of your family, and the disaster mitigation supplies, some of the basics. And then some of the other questions that were asked uh, in that post that we talked about uh, in the first episode was the, the people wanted to know about safety concerns, possible health issues, personal versus government responsibilities, and then other little things. So I thought we would kind of kick this one off with some safety concerns. Yeah, let's talk about Well, safety and personal versus government, those are two real big hot buttons of mine. And, and by the way, what Bear's talking about is, you know, for people who are kind of new, I start a thread about every show on uh, today's Survival Show Forum. So check that out. Uh, the first one we did on this subject was episode 238. Uh, this one here is episode 240. Okay. All right. So safety concerns. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things you have to be aware of when there's any kind of a disaster, and especially if it's a man-made disaster. You need to worry about the sources of the chemicals and the conditions in your area. Um, you know, what what is the air quality? What, you know, can you smell it? readily when you when you are in your house if you can then you definitely don't want to go outside you need to have some kind of a respirator mask that we spoke about in episode one and two to make sure that you're not ingesting because people could have allergies or be allergic uh like a skin rash to the chemicals it can cause burning of the skin burning of the mucous membrane such as your mouth your nose your eye Um, and those are things that could cause like uh, respiratory failure or temporary or permanent blindness if it, if it affected your eyes bad enough. So you really need to be aware of, of any chemical uh, contamination or spills that might happen through a man-made uh, disaster. And the same thing with natural disasters because in a natural disaster you could have a gas line that breaks um, or any you know anything that gets into the water seepage from like if the if the ground opens up and it breaks a water line. So during during an emergency and after an emergency, before you hear it on the radio or TV, you should take steps to realize that there could be contaminants in the water or in the air from a tornado, an earthquake, uh, or tsunami, or what what have you that could cause some health concerns. Um, so you need to protect your health, and if you're away from home and going back to your home. Uh, after an emergency, you need to be aware of those things going in as well as where you are at the time the emergency happens. Well, there are uh, quite a few people in West Virginia that know a lot about water contamination now. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, it, it, during the emergencies, chemicals are most commonly released in the following sources from businesses. There could be a business around you that might uh, produce chemicals that are harmful. Uh, you know, industrials such as chemical plants or refineries. There could be local storage tanks that might leak or break open, agricultural facilities, and even some people at homes through, like, paints, um, you know, different chemicals, household cleaning chemicals, things of that nature that they have in the home. Uh, those could all leak and, and be released into the air as well. Yeah, well, and, you know, especially businesses, that's a big concern, especially if you're like me and you live in the suburbs or near the suburbs or even within a relatively close distance to a major city. You know, yeah, businesses can throw a lot of contamination out there, especially after a disaster. Well, a friend of mine that lives in South Dakota, he lives in a small town, uh, they had, it wasn't even a very big earthquake uh, about a dozen years ago. And the local hardware store, it was like right at the epicenter of the earthquake. It was about a 4.3, I believe, or 4.6. And the the hardware store was right on top of it. And all the chemicals in the store on the shelves, they fell on the floor. Some of them broke open. And when they mixed, they released harmful vapor gases into the air. 
and people around there were getting sick and didn't understand why, and it was because of the vapors and, and gases that had been released during that incident. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Good so, point. So yeah. So you don't you don't know. You know, you just need to you need to keep those in the forethought of where you live in relation to those kind of facilities that have such things on hand. Okay, good point. Yeah, that's well. That's just called you know that's called knowing your area and knowing what kind of threats can hit your area. That's just basic preparedness 101. You know, know your area real well. Know what could possibly happen. What's probable that could likely happen in your area. Well, you know. There's a big thing that, uh, uh, you know, today people talk about situational awareness, and I've, I've listened to a lot of people and read a lot of stories about situational awareness. You need to be aware of a possible gunman coming into a restaurant or store. Well, that is all-inclusive of situational awareness. It's not just for threats of, you know, a, a, an active shooter. It's also of what is in your local vicinity as far as the chemicals, the the, the plants, the, the, what, the things we just talked about. That's also part of situational awareness. Okay. Okay, good you know, point. If, if you live in a small town, uh, a lot of agricultural areas, they have, they have uh, feed and grain mills that have, a lot of times have fertilizers that can get mixed with other things and, and cause, uh, you know, toxins in the air. So, just because you're in a small town, a lot of people figure, well, I'm in a small town, I'm not really worried about an active shooter, but there could be other active, uh, harmful things that can take your life as well. So, you know, it's, it's uh, situational awareness encompasses a lot of areas, not just related to shooting. It, it relates to a lot of different things. Well, it, yeah, not just to shooting. It relates to just basically uh, common sense survival and prepping. I mean, I think, exactly. the, I think the biggest reason why people are in trouble is because, as I've said probably hundreds of times on this show, they've got their head buried in the sand, they're not paying attention to what's going around them locally, and I emphasize the word locally. You know, the media likes to talk about the national stuff going on, but, you know, people are just, like we talked about, I think it was last week in episode two of this of this topic, People are so tethered to their their electronics and their Facebook and their Twitter and their Instagram and all this and and all this goofy nonsensical stuff and and they're so worried about what their friend is doing or not doing and you know they're just not paying attention to what's going on around them locally. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and that's where I that's why I use the term self reliant or being a, being a person of self reliance instead of survival because people don't get into the survival mode until after something happens. If they're in the self-reliant mode before, then they're not having to be a survivalist afterward. They're already in that mindset and they already know what to do. It's, I, I, I really related a lot of times to people that I, that I teach and whatnot to when I was a paramedic. You know, when I was a paramedic, there was no, and, and a firefighter too, there was no, oh, well, it's 8 o'clock, I'm off shift, so I'm done. I was always 24-7 in that mode, and I still am today because when I take people out in the woods, I, I'm still a wilderness EMT, and I still have to be responsible for the people I take out. And, I, you know, I go down the highway, and if I see a bad accident, I stop and help people out. But a lot of people at accident scenes, they get there, and they, you know, they, they I don't know if they have the I want to help mode, but generally they don't help because they're not in that frame of mind, and they don't really know what to do, but they want to help. But if you're in that frame of mind and you practice before something like that happens, you're not one of those people that's freaking out and causing more harm than good. Yeah. 
Hey, I want to ask you to back up for a minute. Uh, if people get one of those rig builder hatchets, uh, if they're keeping it in a bug out bag, do you recommend any sort of cover for the head end? Yeah, you can get a hatchet cover, a leather hatchet cover to put over it. Okay. Uh, uh, there's even some great uh, YouTube videos that I have seen about people making uh, covers for the ends of hatchets and axes out of PVC pipe and uh, you know some kind of cordage. So there's yeah, there's I would suggest putting some kind of cover over the the, the blade end of it. Um, and you could buy a basic hatchet cover and it'll work. Bet you could make it out of paracord too if you had to. Sure, you could you could do that. Okay. All right. Yeah. Sorry to uh, distract you again. All right. So let's keep moving on as far as are, are we still talking more supplies or do you want to get more into safety stuff some more? Um, I, well, I think we covered the safety or the, the supplies pretty well in one and two. Uh, you know, I, I think if okay. people have any questions, they can either contact me or contact you through yeah. the, the forum or my email and website. Um, but I think that, you know, the safety concerns are a lot. People don't think about a lot of the, the things that um, exist when something like when a natural disaster, man-made disaster happens as far as safety concerns. People, I, and I've seen it, I saw it, we talked about it when I was in Katrina, when I went down to see in the area where Katrina happened, um, you know, people were running around and you could smell uh, foul odors in the air and you could smell that there was some kind of chemicals in the air and people are walking around outside like, you know, nothing was going on and I, I you know, I, I thought, how is this? And a lot of people I, I spoke with had headaches they had dizziness. They had nausea. Well, yeah, there's things in the air that you're breathing that you shouldn't be breathing. So, right. you know, you need to be aware of that. But for some reason, that didn't even enter their mind. Well, and there's a safety concern right there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, that that can be a, a huge safety concern because if your family is depending on you um, and you go down, number one, you're exposing your family because now they got to come and rescue you. And then they're exposing themselves to whatever's in the air as well. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good point. All right. So, you know, weather conditions are another thing that influence, uh, you know, those types of things. You have to be aware of which way the wind is blowing. And if they're, if the wind's blowing after a natural or man-made disaster, you want to make sure you stay upwind of whatever could be blowing around in the air. Um, and try to stay out of it as well. Because, you know, like I said, contact through the skin or through, uh, direct, you know, whether it's vapor contact or direct contact, you want to you want to mitigate that as much as possible. Now I got a question for you about safety concerns, um, and this may sound kind of gross, but it's reality. Okay, uh-huh. a lot of times after a disaster, you could find yourself amongst uh, a lot of dead bodies, not just people, but animal dead bodies as well. Uh, talk about that. What you know? What, what's your take on that? Well, it, that's one of the biggest problems that they were having after Katrina was the the flooding. And when the streets flood, the sewers back up. So now you've got fecal matter and urine and everything else that's in the sewer system that people discard down their toilets and sinks and, and whatever else or just happen to throw in, you know, in the sewer. And that all is toxins that are in the water that you could – Basically, get into your body if you have any open lacerations or cuts or abrasions, and that bacteria can get into those, and it can cause all kinds of uh, sepsisemia, which you know is, is a septic shock to the body. It can cause meningitis. Uh, there's there's all kinds of things that can happen 
if you're in that kind of a situation. So uh, dead bodies, I mean, you know, there's that. We talked about that in, in uh, episode one and two, and that was the reason for having, like, visqueen and plastic bags is because uh, you might need to discard of some of that stuff and to have the, the elbow-length rubber gloves so that you can pick that kind of stuff up. Uh, the disinfecting wipes to, to clean the gloves off afterward. I mean, you you don't, you know, water is one of the, the aquifers being contaminated is one of the worst things that can happen because if you ingest water that's been contaminated, it can, it can make you extremely ill or even kill you. Um, <laughs> Which goes back to why you should be storing plenty of water. Exactly. I mean, even, even if, uh, you know, after a disaster, people think that even if they boil the water, it's safe. It's not safe because there can be things in there that you can't boil out. And I, I certainly would never try to boil water that was from a contaminated flood or something and try to drink it. You could distill it, but that's a whole big process to go through to get some water. It's better to try to store water as opposed to try to take water and make it, uh, you know, safe to drink well, in that situation. If, if poisonous chemicals have contaminated the water, I don't think you can boil that out. No, absolutely. That's the other point I was going to make. Chem- if there's any chemicals in the water, uh, or even like natural gas leaking into the water, I mean, that's that's not something that you want to be ingesting or giving your family to ingest uh, to try to stay hydrated. Absolutely not, no. So, yes, stock up plenty of water and uh, keep it on hand so you don't have to worry about those kind of problems after a disaster happens. You know, if nothing else, just for drinking purposes and, and consumption. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the biggest thing is you need water in your body. And, you know, if you have a flood and it backs up into your tub, that water's not safe either. So, you know, you need to have some on hand that... Uh, and it sounds kind of gross, and I've taught people how to do this, but the toilet tank on the back of your toilet, that actually is not toilet water. That water comes in fresh from the supply into the back of the tank. So they have liners now that you can buy to put in your tanks that uh, so you don't get that, like, uh, chalky taste from the inside of the tank, and you can actually drink the water out of the back of your toilet. Cool. <laughs> hey, if you got to do it, you got to do it. Yeah, I mean, it can be one to two gallons of water that you maybe don't have otherwise. So, I, you know, hey, it's it's a it's a, a resource that is there if you need it, and if you need it, you really want it. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Our, you know, listening to this stuff, you know, our our entire life is going to change in an instant if there's a disaster that comes through. I mean, you know, before a disaster, who would think about consuming water that's in your toilet tank? But everything changes once there's some kind of a, a disaster event. Exactly. And, and that's another reason why it's imperative to keep your toilet tank, you know, keep all of the working parts in there in good working order, keep them clean, uh, because, you know, you could take that water and boil that water if, because there might be, uh, you know, maybe some... some uh, slime build up on on the the flapper or the ball or something but you know if you keep it cleaned out you don't have to worry about it and uh, i've even you know suggested to people that you know keep some bleach on hand and if you hear a storm's coming add a, a couple drops of bleach in there you know to that water and it will be you know clean and good to go because anything that's in there uh you know will be dead bleach is such a great tool it's cheap and it's useful for so many things. Uh, people need to always have several gallons on hand. 
Yeah, that's why I said you should, when we talked about it in episode one and two, you should have a minimum of 10 gallons. And there was some other, some of the other questions. Like, why do you recommend so much in the way of white vinegar and bleach and, you know, uh, dish soap? Because you will be amazed at how fast you can go through a gallon of bleach if you have to clean up after, you know, a dead body, be it an animal or human, or if you have to clean up after a flood, uh, you have to try to disinfect some water. You can go through a lot of bleach in a little amount of time, and if you don't have it, that's when you're going to need it. So it's better to need it and not have to use it than to, you know, to need it and not have it. Well, plus it's cheap. Uh, you know, bleach and vinegar is cheap. It's not like you have to spend a lot of money to store that stuff. No, and and with the, the dish detergent, you can, I mean, you can always wash your dishes with it. So, I mean, it's not like something you're never going to use. You can use it if you need it. And then have it on hand for when you really do need it. Yep, that's right. Cool. All right. Um, what else you got on your mind? Um, yeah, people also have to be aware of what's in their own home and disasters. Uh, you know, because people have dangerous chemicals in their in their own houses: cleaners, fertilizers, pesticides, and that may spill in or near the home during an emergency. So, what you really need to be prudent of is making sure that you don't have two chemicals that when they react together, if they were to get spilled and, and in contact, are going to cause some kind of a, a harmful gas or vapor in their, within their own home. Um, you know, those kind of things should never be stored like in a basement or crawl space. They should be stored if you have a garage or some kind of an outbuilding where you're, because as, as everyone should know, gas rises when it, when it is caused. So if you have two chemicals that cause a vapor or gas, that could come up through the floor or through your, your heating vents and whatnot, and it could, you know, basically kill you inside your own home because you have a sealed-off area where that gas cannot dissipate fast enough, and it could cause you some uh, harmful effects as well. Well, and I want to say something. I want to say something since you're talking about harmful gases. You know, this happens a lot after disasters, especially in some climates. Uh, CO2 uh, can be a real big problem. Yeah, your your own hot water heater if it's gas, or your furnace if it's gas, or uh, your baseboards if if you know they're uh, a gas fed baseboard uh, from a boiler. If if the the lines crack, you can get CO2 poisoning, and you could die from that as well. So you should have some battery operated CO2 sensors in your home, along with uh, uh, the uh, smoke alarms and whatnot, because uh, you know that is very dangerous and kills a lot of people every year. Uh, I think we made a no. That's uh, sorry, made a mistake. Carbon CO two is carbon dioxide. I meant to say carbon monoxide. Oh yeah, carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah, <laughs> CO yeah. poisoning, carbon monoxide. <laughs> CO two is yes. carbon dioxide. But I think people yeah, got the point. Yep, you're right. <laughs> sorry, and I led you into making that same mistake. Yeah, you're right. I, I was thinking about my train of thought, and I, I fell right into it. <laughs> <laughs> but carbon monoxide, I mean, that's a serious, It's especially after a disaster, that's a serious concern. You know, I'm a big fan of not just um, carbon monoxide detectors in your house, but you need, to, you need to kind of study up on what types of things cause carbon monoxide gases after a disaster. You need to be aware of that because the problem with carbon monoxide is it's tasteless, it's odorless, you really, you just don't even know you're being exposed to it. And as long as you're constantly in a good ventilated area, you're going to be fine. But I think after a disaster, sometimes you could find yourself in a situation where you might not have a lot of ventilation. 
Right, and and I, you know, I've. I've done this myself when I used to live in a more modern home that had a hot water heater. You know, the the pilot goes out, and you're sitting there, and you're going, I, I I smell gas, but you know, your your thought is, well, it can't be coming from my house because you know everything's fine in my house, but it could very well be coming from your house, and if you ignore it, the consequences can be deadly. So if you smell anything like that, you need to get on it right now and find out where it's coming from because otherwise. You know, children and pets are more susceptible because they're smaller, so they're more susceptible to dying from carbon monoxide poisoning than than a full-size adult. So you need to be on that smell right now when you smell it and find out where the source of that gas is coming from. Exactly. That's right. All right. That goes back to being self-reliant. You need to rely on yourself. You need to be aware of what's happening. You know, the other thing I want to mention, too, about carbon monoxide that people need to be aware of, because I used to be in the business of helping people um, basically uh, choose carbon monoxide detection and, and figure out what could be a danger in their home. Carbon monoxide is lighter than air, so it's yes. going it's going to rise. Right. So keep that in right. mind, especially one common mistake that that people do is um, they don't pay attention to the fact that it rises. Yes, yes. But the early detection, now, now the one thing with the carbon monoxide detectors is that you need to have them at floor level because when it happens, it goes along the floor and rises up. So right. the, the, er, the early warning is to have it down by your feet so that you get the earliest detection of that gas being in the air. Yeah, people make the mistake because they used to put, I used to see people put them up on their ceiling. Right, right. And by that time, you're generally knocked out and won't do any good anyways. Exactly. Yeah, it's, not, it's not the same as a smoke detector. A, a gas will, will go along before it rises. Now, smoke is lighter than air, so smart, smoke rises quick. That's why you have your, your smoke detectors up on the ceiling because that's going to be early warning detection. But, but gases, they go, they go low and then rise slower, so you want to have them down at your feet. Exactly. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, you know, I've seen that too in a lot of houses. People put them right next to their smoke detectors because they think it's the same thing, but it's not. <laughs> nope, it's not. So, and, and another thing too is the like any uh, stains, varnishes, paints that you have. There are VOCs that can be released, volatile organic compounds that can be released if those paint cans or stain or whatever uh, get opened up. So you have to be aware of that. You have to be, again, aware of any chemicals like drain cleaners and chlorine that mix together. That can be very, very caustic gases that can be released from that. So you want to keep these things separated, uh, keep them in separate cabinets, and keep them not in your basement. Keep them in your garage or in an outbuilding, preferably, where they're away from your living quarters uh, so that you don't have to worry about that being a possible uh, death sentence. Okay, good stuff. Uh, also, when you have children, if you have uh, like a natural disaster that happens, you want to keep your your pets and children away from leaks and spills of any types of chemicals. That's kind of a no-brainer, but people don't think about that. They, you know, they're they're trying to assess the damage and they're not paying attention to their family. You need to pay attention to your family first and assess the damage later because if your children or pets get near any of that stuff, it could be a deadly situation. So. You know, take care of your family first and then worry about, you know, everything else secondhand. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Good stuff. Um, anything more on safety or do we want to shift gears into 
personal and go- versus government responsibility. Well, you know, one of the things is what that people need to be aware of too is after disaster, if you are, you know, in your home, let's say chemicals spill and whatnot, you want to make sure that you you keep those chemicals from going down drains or in storm sewers or in the toilet because they will get into the water and further contaminate the water. So you want to you want to try to contain those as quickly as possible, uh, or even if you see some out in the community, you know, you you want to keep that from getting into the aquifer as much as possible yeah i get you but i just don't see a lot of people paying much attention to that quite frankly well it's, it's just a point i wanted to bring up to give people food for thought of something that you know maybe they could mitigate that with containment prior to an, an, an accident happening where it won't spill um, and obviously don't burn any household chemicals because then you're going to release harmful gases into the air um and mark and set aside after every, everything's done and you're cleaning up, mark and set aside unbroken containers until they can be properly disposed of so that people know what they are and what's in them. Uh, if you take like a, you know, a two liter bottle or a milk jug and you, you know, pour some, uh, varnish or stain or whatever into it because the, the, the container was in was damaged, you don't want people thinking it's something that maybe they can drink. You want to have it marked and labeled so the, the people know exactly what it is. Good point. And obviously, leave, leave damaged and unlabeled chemical containers undisturbed. If you don't know what it is, don't mess with it because it can be, you can make a, a worse effect from messing with it and trying to clean it up than uh, what it might already be. You know, <laughs> that's such common sense, but unfortunately, common sense ain't so common in a disaster sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, people get tunnel vision. You know, I mean, it's it's the same. It doesn't matter what kind of emergency it is. People get tunnel vision, and they're focused on, you know, like what's right in front of them, and they're they're not really thinking clearly. Uh, again, I go back to the self reliance. If you practice a self reliant lifestyle, then you're gonna you're gonna have that forethought already there. You know, it's the old saying: it takes one thousand repetitions for muscle memory to kick in. Well, it's the same thing when you're practicing. Uh, being prepared or being self-reliant. If you don't practice and use what you have and and plan and prepare properly, then it does you no good to have the supplies in the first place. Good stuff, right? Um, so again, the possible health issues um, from either airborne or direct contact, respiratory illness or distress, rashes or skin discoloration, memory distress or loss. Uh, becoming mentally crippled due to inhalation of toxins emitted from burning chemicals or chemical vapors and gases, especially pregnant women. They can have false labor, early labor, or a child with birth defects from exposure. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, the ultimate one is death from exposure is also a likely possibility. Okay. Um, now, as far as the, the personal versus government responsibilities, I mean, I, I think by now people should get the idea of, of which way we lean. Um, you know, you're personally responsible for yourself, and I would not ever rely on FEMA or any other government agency to help an emergency. I mean, look how many days it took for FEMA to get water to people in Katrina. Yeah, it, well... It took five days. And, and do you know, you know the funny thing? You know why it took them five days to get water? Why? They were trying to find a source to donate the water because FEMA didn't want to use their personal stash to give to the people. Instead of giving people water and then replenishing their stock, no, they were trying to find donors to give water to the the victims of Katrina. Boy, there's a great example of our tax dollars at work. 
isn't it? You know, they, well, you know, we might need those for, for at some point. Yeah, we'll restock after you give the water to the victims. No, yeah. they wanted to make, you know, they, and, 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 you know, any of the follow up, I did some follow up. Any of the building that is going on is not government money. It's all private donations. A lot of them come from uh, Hollywood stars like Brad Pitt, Harrison Ford. Uh, you know, people that have lived in that area or are very fond of that area have helped to rebuild the French Quarter. You know, it, it's not from government money. It's all personal donations that have gone to help rebuild that community. You know, so, you know, you're right. And I want to say something about that because I spent a lot of time in New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans is part of my sales territory. I'm there probably once every five or six weeks. I'm in the French Quarter all the time because I have a lot of customers there as I do surrounding New Orleans area. I got to say that that city has come back in a big way. It It's good to see. It's really good to see that that city has come roaring back. And you're right. A lot of it is it was not because of the government. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of it is because of you know private enterprise and private donations. But talk about talk about a city that survived and rebounded. It's amazing. Yeah, and I really didn't think it was going to until you started hearing about these donations. You know, again, like I said, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, uh, Sandra Bullock, Harrison Ford, uh, and there's a lot of others. Ellen DeGeneres. There's a lot of them, a lot of celebrities that have given their own money and their own time to help rebuild that city. And where, where's the government? You know, what, why do we have government programs and, and government emergency funds and disaster programs when we can't even get them to help build one of the, the biggest cities in the South? I don't, you know. And we're going to count on the government for other things? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. All those all those Hollywood stars that you just mentioned, I don't agree with anything that they say or do politically. But i got to hand it to them. If they poured money into organizations to rebuild that city and do that, you know, what does that tell you about the ineptness of relying on the government. I mean, that's just amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the first thing that set me off was, was the water issue we just talked about. You know, five days to get water because FEMA didn't want to use their stash. I mean, that just, that's absolutely abhorrent behavior. But what's happened about it? Nothing. People are like, well, what are you going to do about it? You know? Well, of yeah. course nothing's going to happen. They're the government. They're immune to any kind of consequences, right? Uh, yeah, exactly, and I, that to me is ludicrous that they're immune from that. You know, we, we're supposed to have them to rely on for backup. I, I would never rely on, on them as a first-hand uh, rescue, but as a backup or a buffer, okay, I can understand people doing that. But people that, that's the only thing that they're going to rely on is, well, the government's going to help me. You know, well, you need to get your head out of the sand because that's not going to work. No. As I've said, it's an individual's responsibility to plan and enact a mitigation plan before an emergency or disaster, and enact a rescue or evac plan after the disaster, and is of the utmost importance to be prepared prior. That is the key. Be prepared prior. Because the government is not going to help you. You're just a a little ant in the the ant farm, and they've got bigger fish to fry than worry about what's happening to you. In, in In fact, I see a scenario... You know, uh, Glenn Tate writes about this a lot in his 299 Days book series, which I still, I, I have a feeling that that man is just, um, I think he has been given a gift to talk about a lot of what's probably coming our way, 
uh, in the future, you know, it, it, the government's more likely going to be your enemy rather than your assistance. Well, you know, I, I just read an article that, uh, you know, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, is buying another 75.1 million rounds of ammo this year. Billion or million? Billion. 7.5 or 7.1? 75.1. Billion rounds of ammo. Rounds of ammo this year. Added to the billions. You know what? Those guys don't shoot that much. Exactly. Why do they need all this ammo? You know, and and I also heard another uh, news story, and I've heard it from from multiple sources that they are trying to diminish the military to ranks below what they were in World War Two. Yeah, I know, I know. So you know, I mean, uh, if you think the government's going to help you, uh, I think you need to wake up because you there's you got another thing coming. That's not. Uh, you know, it's not the way it is. And that's what, you know, that's what people ask me is uh, a lot of times, well, you know, you could live in a suburb and live the way you live. I don't want to be in a suburb. I don't want to be one of the fish in the fishbowl. I like to think outside the box. I like to be my own person. I like to be responsible for myself. I was, I was taught self-reliance and stewardship from a very young age. Not only, you know, for myself, but for things in the wild. You know, I, I used to, I told you, uh, telling you earlier, I cut wood. I cut firewood for, for heating, uh, in the wintertime. Uh, but for every tree that I cut down, I replant two to three trees in that same area. Good so for that, you. So that those resources are always going to be there. I don't just go out and deplete the, 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 the forest of the resources. I put back what I use and I put it back two or threefold. So, you know, I, I like being so it's, 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 it's a lifestyle. It's not something, it's not work. It's not, uh, you know, unenjoyable. It's, it's, I like doing it. it. I like to know that I'm, I'm responsible for the food I put on my own table. I'm responsible for the wood that I use to heat my home, the, the responsible to build my own shelter, responsible to make a lot of my own clothing, um, you know, preserving my own food through canning. I like to be self-reliant. That's why I live this way. I, I've chosen this way because I lived in, uh, you know, your your uh, thousand square foot ranch or fifteen hundred square foot ranch home or two story. I've lived in two story homes, and I've lived in subdivisions. And I grew up. My my aunt and uncle lived in a subdivision for fifty four years. I grew up in that subdivision. And I hated every minute of it. It made no sense to me. It does not make sense that when you look out your windows and doors, all you see are houses, telephone poles, electric poles. You know, that's all I saw. And it's it just, you know, traffic going by on the, on the local interstate. That makes no sense to me. That is not a calm, peaceful way to live. <laughs> I guess I'd have to agree with you on that. Sometimes I forget that. Yeah, you know, and, and so many people that I, it, it, the biggest, the biggest, Amazing thing to me, and, and it, it's still after 35 years, it still amazes me, are the people that I take into the woods who work in a cubicle in a, in a high-rise office building. They go to work at 8 o'clock in the morning. They come home at 6 o'clock at night. They sit down. They eat dinner. They watch TV. They go to bed. They get up and they repeat every day, five days a week. And on the weekends, oh, we, we have to run Johnny the soccer. and We have to run Melissa to dance. And we have to do this. And we have to go there. And we have to go to the, the dry cleaners. And we have to do laundry. And then come Monday morning, they start that cycle all over again. And I take them out into the woods, and they're always so wired up. They have their little their little smartphone or their little uh, you know tablet, and they want to take it out. Well, there's no Wi-Fi out there. Oh, I have I you know I have Wi-Fi. I have personal Wi-Fi. 
No, you're not taking your device out there. You're not taking your Wi-Fi. You're not taking any of that stuff. Oh, but, uh, you know, I, I need to keep up on the news, and I need to talk to my wife, and I need to talk to my husband, and I need to this, and I need to, to schedule this thing. No, if you're out here, that goes away until you're done with the course. <laughs> and, and by the second to third day, I can see a change. I can see them their, their clock starting to wind down. I can see the gears that are so tightly wound in there, they're starting to relax. And I can see people, they're appreciating what's around them. You know, when they first start out, all they're doing is walking uh, in a headlong path, and they're not paying attention to what's around them, the, the birds and the you know, or the snow in the trees when I do a winter one or and things like that. And then once they get out there after two or three days, they, this, this metamorphosis change, you know, happens. They morph into a relaxed, more natural being that can start to appreciate what's out there. And I get a lot of them that say to me, well, I never knew this existed. No, because you're so caught up in your little you know, world of uh, alarm clocks and schedules and have to be here at this time and have to do that and run here and run there that you're not stopping to smell the roses and take time to, to realize what's out there. And one of the one of the sayings that I that I say quite often is you only get one ticket on this merry-go-round. Once the ride is done, you don't get a second chance. If you don't enjoy the ride while you're on it, you don't ever get a chance to enjoy it any other time. Absolutely. So you know these kind of things are, are things that people really need to take in consideration. Um, you know, as as living a self reliant lifestyle, they get well. I don't have time because my schedule doesn't allow, or I don't, you know, I don't have enough money. Well, if you don't have enough money, then you're overspending because if you're making good money and you don't have enough money to be able to take care of yourself and your family, that should be a, a, a bell going off in your head saying, "Wait, something's wrong here. This is this is not right." You know, and I we talked about uh, in the I don't know if it was the last episode or first episode the people that I've had that say they go out to dinner three to five times a week and spend twenty to sixty dollars on on, a, on every meal, and they don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I, I've brought it to their attention that if you if you save some of that money and you eat at home and don't spend so much when you go out, you would have money to buy the things that you might need that are are cheap insurance in a situation that you will need those supplies. It's all a matter of priorities. Yeah, it is. And, and people's priorities, I guess, are to go out and eat at a restaurant so they don't have to cook at home because their schedule's too busy to allow them to cook. And they think it's healthier than throwing a, a frozen whatever in the microwave and heating it up and eating it for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Yeah, well, it's not healthier on the bank account. No, it's, it's I, depending on the restaurant you go to, it can be healthier food, but it's definitely not healthier on the bank account. Nope. Okay, so, good. You know, there's all that kind of stuff that that you know I like to I like, like to give people food for thought to think about because uh, you know that uh, life is way way too short and you know people plan a lot for well in two years I'm going to do this and in five years I'm going to do that that's that's one of the things I always heard in school when I was in high school what's your five year plan I don't have a five year plan I could be dead in five years why would I plan five years ahead when I could die and I waste all that time planning for something that might never happen I need to live for here and now not five years from now. Well, but the problem is, is some people don't even have a five-week plan. No, they don't, or a one-week plan. I mean, they, you know, they. I, I've I've heard many times the the scenario where people don't conserve toilet paper until they're on the last half roll that they have. Then all of a sudden, <laughs> they want to conserve. <laughs> you know, and by the way, that's kind of funny. You bring that up. Uh, don't ignore that prep. Store lots of TP. <laughs> Well, that's why that's why I brought up about having the baby wipes. You can use one baby wipe to wipe four times, 
and a container of wipes can go a long way. And they also, if they get wet, they're not going to be ruined like toilet paper. If toilet paper gets wet, it's basically no good. It just becomes a lump of mush. So, yeah, it's useless. You know, maybe white, white, yeah, baby wipes would be a better idea. Or keep your toilet paper in a, in a watertight container um, if you're going to store toilet paper. Yep, good. Um, we're getting close to the ending point here, a couple minutes. What else do you have on your mind, Bear? Uh, some of the other little things uh, are decontamination. You want to make sure that you wash the skin. That may have come in contact with any chemicals or vapors. Um, so you, you might need to remove and dispose of your clothing because if it stays in the clothes, you might not be able to wash them. So it's better to just bag them up and dispose of them properly and then wash yourself. Um, it will reduce uh, or remove the chemicals so you don't, you're not so much in a hazard. Uh, and this again, this process is called decontamination. Avoid oil spills, obviously. Crude oil is a mixture of chemicals that could release uh, into the environment during emergencies, such as a hurricane or flood. Uh, some parts of the oil will float on water that can be seen as a film on the surface. Other parts will sink to the bottom and can cause other problems. Mm -hmm. uh, some can become fumes in the air. So oil, you know, crude oil is not something. It's not like motor oil. It's not refined. It's crude, and it's got a lot of chemicals in it. So it's not something. Uh, if you know, we've had train derailments, we've had uh, tankers that have spilled with crude oil, we've had you know uh, drilling stations that have that have blown up and leaked oil. So those are all you know, and it's becoming more prevalent with all the drilling that's going on, um, and uh, getting them in the air and on your skin and breathing them in, uh, you can you can, it can cause some problems as well. Uh, again, natural disasters. We talked about that. Houses, and cars can be destroyed. Loved ones, and neighbors can get seriously injured or die. Water supplies contaminated, waste back up in the streets, toilets, you know, any of that stuff. Foodborne illness becomes prevalent during natural disasters because chemicals will adhere like to meats and vegetables, so get into the skins. So you could have foodborne illnesses. You could get nausea or uh, uh, food poisoning or any kind of illness from dead, rotting carcasses, rodents, fecal matter. But food is a big thing that you have to be careful of. Anything that gets into the food can cause you uh, uh, some severe problems. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the other things that a lot of people don't think about, down power lines that can still be live and cause electrocution. Uh, if you have standing water, there there could be a line that could be a block or two down the street, and you might have standing water in the street. Maybe that, that power line falls into the street and it's live. You could get electrocuted from that. That is that is live water now, so you have to be careful of that kind of stuff. Rubber boots, that's one way to, to mitigate that from happening. Rubber boots, rubber gloves. Um, you know, that's an insulator that will keep you from getting electrocuted. So that's why we talked, one of the reasons I talked about having those uh, back in episode one and two. Um, so you don't want to step into it unprotected. You don't, any place that there's water, there could be uh, electrocution problem. Um, also, damaged appliances in your home, that's another source of carbon monoxide poisoning. So you have to be careful, like your stove. Uh, you know, if you have a gas stove that could, that could, or a propane stove, that could cause a problem. Well, also, um, too, if you live in a northern climate and you've got a furnace in your basement, for example, uh, if something goes wrong, they break down, whatever, uh, those can give off a lot of carbon monoxide. Be real careful of that. Yeah, if you have if you have an older furnace that has a standing pilot and the pilot gets gets blown out, then that still is releasing gas 
which again is carbon monoxide poisoning and you know you could die from that so it could come up through the the venting you know the, the register vents and whatnot so yeah you have to be be well aware of that um and prior other things prior to a natural disaster is pre-planning and uh, you need to learn where the shutoffs are to your water main, your home electric, and your gas, whether it's natural or propane. You need to know where they're located and how to shut them all off. Learn this before you need to know it because if you aren't familiar with the types of shutoff valves, you might look at them and go, oh, I don't know what to do. So you need to know how to shut those off prior to a disaster happening. Um and one of the things that I, that I touched on a lot recently in the last, I'm going to say, two years, uh, that, and I highly recommend to clients, is having a small storage unit located about halfway between either where you work or where a relative's house is and your home. There you can keep a secondary or backup supply of food, water, clothing, possibly fuel for a vehicle, and other sundry items that may be needed for an extended or indefinite period of time. Uh, they might even need to use that storage unit to shelter in the event that their home is destroyed or they have to evacuate, be it voluntarily or mandatorily. Um, in that case, it would be advisable to have cots, blankets, pillows, an emergency toilet, which can be a five-gallon bucket with a liner and a lid, and a bucket uh, to use for washing in, and as well as plenty of uh, extra water. Uh, storage units are, you know, it's a great way to have secondary supplies. Uh, to, you know, if, if you're at work, uh, let's say you you were out on a call and something happened at your home. You might make that a, a central uh, point where your family and you meet, so that you know if they had to evacuate or if the house was destroyed uh, by flooding or, or tornado or whatever, you could meet there. You could maybe live in there for a while until you decide where you're going to go. Uh, you have supplies ready at hand so that you know you don't have to go without because maybe you weren't able to get the supplies out of the house or you know whatever the case might be. So that's a small storage unit. You know is is not a, a very big expense for the insurance that it offers you. I agree with you about a secondary place to have supplies. I'm not so sure if the ownership or management would allow you to live in there. Well, and I, and well, I can tell you firsthand they will because they did it down in uh, Louisiana. Really? Um, they they allowed people, yes. And one of the things that they were doing at a storage unit uh, facility was they were bringing in those pod containers and converting those into temporary housing as well. Oh, okay. For people to live in those pods. So, all right. Yeah, in a disaster, I don't. You know, I you know. Community generally comes together, but even if you couldn't live there, just having the supplies that you might not be able to have otherwise is, you know, it's, it's a good secondary backup. But Definitely. again, I think I think in most disasters, uh, you know, uh, the owner or manager would not have a problem with letting you live there temporarily. Well, uh, good. thanks for that example. I was just wondering about that. I, I kind of thought, hmm, they might object to that. But, you know, minds can change in a disaster as well. Exactly. And the final thing for prior to natural disaster is first aid and training. And if you have a family, which could be you and your spouse or you, your spouse, and, and a child or children, uh, because I assume that you love your family, then you should know at a minimum basic first aid and CPR, which is cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is imminently important. For a, for a medical emergency to know how to treat injuries or someone whose heart has failed. It could be from a traumatic accident, a disaster, electrocution, what have you. Um, the, the American Red Cross offers basic and advanced first aid 
and first responder training courses now. In addition, they offer training in AEDs, which are the automated external defibrillators, which most people probably wouldn't have, but if you were in a, uh, let's say a shopping mall and you knew first aid, you knew how to use one of those and someone went down with a heart attack, you could, you know, put that on them and, and use it. Um, also the American Heart Association, to me, offers the best CPR training um, and you can go to them at heart.org or you can go to redcross.org for the first aid, uh, basic and advanced first aid. And the next step after getting your first aid CPR certifications is to take a tactical medical course. And I know people are going to say, well, tactical medical, you know, that, what, that has to do with guns. But tactical medical does not just mean guns because in a disaster situation, there's tactical medical and trying to, to save people in rubble, buildings that have fallen down. They might be buried in rubble. Um, just like, just like uh, 9-11, they had tactical medics on hand because they were trained in how to help people better that were in those situations than a basic paramedic or EMT. So a tactical medical course, as well as it goes hand-in-hand hand with a situation where guns might uh, need to be used as well. Um, and they teach you how to use a ventilated operator kit, which is a kit that will, will stop, you know, a, a severe gunshot wound and things of that nature. Um, everyone, especially if you're into prepping, should have a self-rescue VOK or ventilated operator kit or at minimum a self-use first aid kit or FAK. That, that should be standard in any preps. That should be one of the first things you have after you have your food, water, and shelter. Uh, you should have a first aid kit. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the tactical medical course. You know, uh, the other podcast I do on guns, I've had people over there, I've had con- general comments on forum and Facebook and stuff saying, oh, that's a waste of time, that's ridiculous, nobody needs to know that. You know, and I actually got scoffed at for interviewing tactical medicine instructors because they thought that that was just a complete waste of time. But little do they know, they, they don't know what they don't know. Well, you know, I can tell you from a paramedic point of view, I have responded to a lot of incidents that were very minor injuries, very minor lacerations or abrasions, and you get to the home, and, and you know, parents, when they call in, they make it sound like the child is, you know, going to bleed out in two minutes, and, you know, they're, they're just hanging on the precipice of life and death, and you get there, and it's a minor little, like, three or four inch laceration that, you know, maybe needs a couple stitches, but it's not a life-threatening cut and people don't understand that when that that scenario of your child being injured a lot of times is far worse than if you see a neighbor injured but what people don't understand is there is specific training on how to extricate somebody from a building with a bunch of rubble on top or in in a there's a way to extricate people if like say a a telephone pole in a in a a earthquake fell on top of a car you're not just going to try to open the door rip the person out there's training that you need to get on how to extricate those people out of those scenarios. And tactical medical courses do that. They, they teach people how in, in, in simulated scenarios how to do that. Now, again, I, I brought this up in Episode 1 and 2. You can't know the mindset until a disaster actually happens. You can prepare for it the best you can, but you cannot actually know what your mindset is going to be until a disaster is actually affecting you and people around you. Exactly. You're going to have scre- you're going to have screaming people, crying people, you know, people running around, you know, l- literally losing their mind because they may have lost their their husband or wife or child or some other loved one or friend. And people will lose their mind if they can't find that person. You know, at first it's it's 
the, the state of denial. It didn't really happen what's going on around me. Then when it sets in, people get this mindset of, oh my God, where is, where is John or where is Mary or where is my, my dad? Where is my mom? Where is my son? Where is my daughter? And, and at that point, hyperdrive kicks in. The tunnel vision kicks in. The adrenaline gets notched up 10 points. And people will literally run around like they're losing their mind. So you need to understand all of these situations that come into play. And I know this from traffic accidents where loved ones, you know, when cell phones were, were becoming prominent in the late 80s and early 90s, we would have parents showing up to accident scenes the same time we were getting there on an accident where a loved one or a child or something was caught trapped in a car and the parents are standing there screaming save my child or save my husband or save my wife and you have to deal with all of that as well as try to rescue the person that is injured so you need to understand there's a mental aspect that people don't understand at this point because they're not really in the situation you need to be trained for it and basic first aid a lot of times or even advanced first aid is not going to help you when you're in a disaster situation. You don't have a clue what the first thing is to do. Yeah, you can, you can give them first aid, but you've got to get them out of the situation before you can affect first aid. So you need to have that training, and tactical medical courses do that. Very good point. That's a great stopping point, too, because that was, I mean, amen. That final point you just made there was awesome. Well, I, you know, it's things that people, again, it's food for thought that things that people need to think about uh, before the stink hits the fan. Well, White Bear, this three-part series has been great. Um, you know, if somebody didn't get something out of this, out of these last three parts, then uh, they're probably not real serious about what they're doing when it comes to prepping. I really, really thank you a lot for your time. It was great, and thanks so much. We're all looking forward to the video. Yeah, it's, it's going to take me uh, about two to three weeks to get everything filmed, edited, and, and to you. So, you know, I, I, I urge people to stand by. The video will be coming, and uh, I hope people enjoy it and get a lot out of it. And I'll make an official announcement, and I'll let people know how they can get it and how they can buy it and stuff to support the show and all that, and uh, I appreciate it. Uh, for people that are relatively new, uh, before, as we're finishing up, give out your website and YouTube channels where they can find you. Uh, PLSS Living Wild, that stands for Primitive Living Skills School, PLSSLivingWild.com is the website. Uh, I have two YouTube channels. I, uh, it's YouTube.com slash Primitive Living and YouTube.com slash Barefoot Bushrat. And I also have a Facebook page, uh, Facebook page, uh, Facebook.com slash White Bears Primitive Living Skills School. Nice. White Bears Primitive Living Skills School. Cool. Excellent. White Bear, thank you very much. I appreciate this a lot. Uh, best of luck to you. You know, we're gonna, let's get you back on probably in six or seven weeks again, cause, uh, I have some things, I've been thinking of some things the last three weeks that I've been wanting to ask you, and I'll send you a little outline in advance. Okay, that sounds good. And he's on the forum, folks, so join the forum, ask him some questions about either of these, and thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's not a problem. One, one of the things people need to understand is when I do these podcasts, I come into town because where I live, I don't have Internet. 
So I have to come into town, which is about 16 miles from where I live. And so if, if you send me a question or you send me an email or you subscribe to my YouTube channel, please understand that I don't, I can't and I don't answer those, uh, every day like a lot of people do. I answer them once every few weeks, sometimes even every few months if I'm really busy with a lot of my, uh, my tribal gatherings going on. So please don't be offended. Uh, you know, I, I will get to you eventually, but it may take me some time. Uh, as I have to be in town to be online. You can't just flip open your laptop and, and respond to them. No, I, that doesn't work where I live. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care out there. All right. You too, Bob. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, White Bear, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to that video. He says he's almost done with it. It'll be available on the Survival Champions Club page. The Survival Champions Club is a select group of podcasts that I've never aired on this show. This is going to be the first video. And it's information. It's only going to be $25. It'll help support the show and support what I do. There's two ways you can support this show if you like what I do. One way is to go to my Amazon page. And if you're going to buy something off of Amazon, buy it off of my page. Uh, go to todayssurvival.com. Click the Amazon store page. You'll see a link there. It'll take you right in there. Amazon gives me a fee, a little little commission for anything that's purchased on there. And it's pretty cool. Many of you have been doing that. I've been getting a lot of support. Thank you very much. Don't forget about Glenn Tate's books. You can buy Glenn Tate's books on Amazon. You can buy all kinds of things on Amazon. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. It, there's, there's all kinds of ways to support uh, people without spending any extra money. And if you're going to spend some money on Amazon anyway, spend it on my page if you don't mind. Also, the Survival Champions Club, his video coming out on the supplies you need and things like that. Uh, that's going to be made available, and I'll be able to email it to you at only $25 each. So when that's ready, I'll let you know. Well, that's it, folks. That's it for this episode. Um, I'm going to have to take a break because, as I mentioned, I'm going to start chemotherapy four days from when this podcast comes out. So I'm probably going to have to take a little bit of a break. Uh, probably at least a couple weeks until I get to feeling better, till I can start doing some more research and doing some more podcasts. If you want to join the forum, go to todayssurvival.com, click the forum button, register for the forum, send me an email please. Send me an email after you register and give me the username that you picked. And then I'll go into the list of waiting members and I will approve you. And then you can start posting. That's the easiest way for me to keep spammers out of there. Uh, spammers are just really tough and that's you know I know that's a long process some forums you can just sign right up and get in I probably need to investigate uh, some software that'll help make that a little bit more automated but for now it is what it is so sign up for the forum send me a quick email uh, I'll be checking email at least once every 24 hours and I'll get your account approved I'll send you an e back, email back saying welcome welcome to the forum you can start posting and we'd love to have you chatting with other listeners about subjects and matters of preparedness okay folks I'm Bob Main thanks for listening to yet another episode of today's survival show it's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have wherever you are and keep survival practical common sense and useful thanks for tuning in talk to you next time goodbye